The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. music you're hearing comes from London as the 1970s turned into the 1980s. And if it sounds to you like an advertising jingle, that's because that's exactly what it is. When you open an account with Burnley Building, you got a free copy of this record, sung by George Chandler and written by a then-unknown advertising writer in London who had written a science fiction novel that nobody had read and critics didn't think much of. But he had hit it big, advertising-wise, with the phrase Irresistibubble for a chocolate bar. And the line, that'll do nicely for American Express. Soon thereafter, the songwriter would become famous in the literary world for his novel Midnight's Children, which won the Booker Prize in 1981. Seven short years later, he would be perhaps the most famous writer in the world. When the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was then the supreme leader of Iran, responded to his fourth novel, The The Satanic Verses, by calling it blasphemous against Islam and proclaiming a fatwa, ordering his execution. A bounty was placed on his head, sending him into hiding and police protection. He was not quite 40 years old at the time. His name, of course, was Salman Rushdie. It's rare for a writer to make it onto the front page of the newspaper, and rarer still for that writer to be the cause of geopolitical upheaval. His life and works would be worth our time even if the fatwa had not occurred. But because it did, we can be confident that Salman Rushdie will be an indelible part of literary history for as long as there is such a thing. The Salman Rushdie story today on the history of literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. This one is a special request from an old friend of mine who loves Salman Rushdie and in particular loves his book for children, Haroon and the Sea of Stories, which is a good reminder to me to tell all you parents out there to read to your kids. You probably are already, but hey, let me tell you, I'm on the other end of things now with kids starting to think about college and I have a couple of investments that are paying off. One is the money I socked away in the 529 fund. Thank goodness I did that. College is ridiculously expensive, or it can be here in the States. I didn't have a lot, but luckily I started early, and it grew. But the other and more meaningful investment were the hours upon hours of reading to my kids. Anything they wanted, whenever they wanted, assuming I was available. And luckily for all of us, I didn't have the smartphone in those early years because I'm not sure I'd have been strong enough to resist. 
Well, maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit. But anyway, there is magic in books. You all know that. And there's magic that happens between a caregiver and a child with stories being transferred and language and love. I don't tell you what to do. You know that. That's not my job. I'm not sure if all of you have noticed this, but I truly don't tell you what to do. I don't tell you what to read. It shocks me whenever people email me and say, why do I have to read Jane Austen? I don't like her. And I say, whoever said you had to read Jane Austen, go email someone else who's been hectoring you. I'm not. You don't have to read anything you don't want. That's my opinion. You don't have to listen to this podcast either if you don't want to. It's available for you, but nothing I do is required. People, not even the Patreon account, patreon.com slash literature, or the virtual coffee, an easy donation, one time only at historyofliterature.com slash shop. Just kidding. Nothing. Truly nothing in the world of literature is required. <laughs> you don't have to do it. So if you feel guilty or upset, please do a little inward reflection and realize that an email to your old friend Jack is not the right course of action. He truly does not care what you read and what you don't and what you like and what you don't. It's all up to you. But if you would like some friendly advice from someone who's been around the block a few times, I would say to invest early in your college fund for your kids and above all, to find as much time as you can to read to those little ones your children or your grandchildren or whichever young person is in your care. Those hours can sometimes seem tedious. I once made the mistake of reading Green Eggs and Ham in a funny voice to my son, thinking I was mixing things up a bit for him. But he took to it, and for months he demanded I read him that book in that voice, and I couldn't bear to disappoint him. So I read it over and over, thousands of times. But even that was worthwhile. It all was. It was some of the best moments we've spent together. Just me and him in a comfortable spot and a book. And those hours have paid off, thankfully. They have accrued with interest. Okay, Salman Rushdie today. What a life. It's worth discussing for his books and his accomplishments alone. That book that I mentioned, Midnight's Children, not only won the Booker Prize in 1981, it was named the Booker of Bookers at the 25th year anniversary of the prize, and the same thing happened at the 40th. The best of all the Booker Prize winners, or so the Booker Prize announced. Not bad to be chosen the best novel out of 40 years of prize-winning novels to win the first of 41st. It's like winning a, the Jeopardy Tournament of Champions or a dog being named best in show. Now, a cynic Let's say whoever was the runner-up in those contests might say, well, that was an easy choice. The poor man spent years living under a death threat. He probably got a few votes out of sympathy for, or out of respect for what he represents, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, the importance of literature, freedom for a literary writer to say whatever he wants, even if it's satire against the powerful, even if it's viewed as subversive by a government or or blasphemous by a religion. Fiction should be free, and fiction writers should not be condemned to death. And when it has happened, we should vote for him. That's what I imagine someone upset at not winning the prize, the Booker of the Bookers might say, or think. They might think, oh, sure, Midnight's Children, pretty good book, but who's going to vote against Rushdie? Come on. And that's a little bit of the difficulty here, separating out the achievements and the literature from the politics 
and the fallout from the novels. It's such a dramatic story, but that's our job here to separate that out. Luckily, Rushdie doesn't make that too difficult. His works are high-minded and high-quality. He's attempting to write high-quality fiction, so it's not as if we have to find a way to overpraise junk. I'm not a fan of all of his fiction, but it's not like we're talking about a writer who would have no place in the discussion of literature were it not for the fatwa. Rushdie is a major writer and would be even if the fatwa had never occurred. But let's start at the beginning. We'll take a quick break and come back with Rushdie's surprising childhood and early years. At least there were some surprises in there for me, like Rushdie being a name his father made up. For one thing, we'll have that story after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So, once when Barack Obama was asked about his greatest skill or talent, he said he thought it was that the example of his life, who he was, served to bring people together. I wish I could find the interview. He gave so many speeches and interviews, he's not easy to Google, so I have to work from memory here. But I think he was asked what his greatest strength was. And he said, I think I'm in a position where I can bring people together because of who I am and my background. He didn't mean he had a skill or talent at all, in other words, which is kind of an interesting response, which is why it stood out to me. He was referring to his origins and how he'd grown up. That's his... That's my memory of it anyway. He didn't say my intelligence or I think it's my patience or my even temper or my decision-making ability or any of the other things that people say when they're asked that kind of a question. He was saying, look at me. Look, and let's look at Obama. His mother was white and from Kansas. His father was from Kenya. He was born in Hawaii. His mom remarried a man from Indonesia where he lived for a few years. Then he returned to Hawaii and lived with his white grandparents for a few more years. He went to college in New York City, Columbia, the Ivy League, and Harvard Law School, where he was very successful. He could have had an East Coast life at that point, but instead he went to Chicago, worked as a community organizer, and he married Michelle Obama, a black woman from a black family in Chicago. His family, he said, was like a mini United Nations with relatives who look like Bernie Mac and relatives who look like Margaret Thatcher. 
This interview came to mind when I started reading about Salman Rushdie and his life, not just because he too was all over the place with cultural ties in multiple lands and multiple communities, but because it's how he came to view himself. He said in an interview, my life has given me the subject of worlds in collision. He drew a distinction between fiction writers like William Faulkner, who famously had a postage stamp of territory that he owned, or Eudora Welty, another writer from the South, writers who spent their whole life, or most of it, in one location and who knew it inside and out and who dove deep into the minds and lives of the residents there. That wasn't Rushdie. He said that writers like that, and he probably could have also been talking about some of his London contemporaries like Julian Barnes or Martin Amos, but Rushdie said, the thing that a Faulkner or a Welty has, a patch of the earth that they know so profoundly and belong to so totally that they can excavate it all their lives and not exhaust it, I admire that, but it's not what I do. End quote. So, what were those worlds that he saw colliding or that he was participating in the collision of? He was born in 1947 in what was then called Bombay and what was then, in fact, British India, though that would only last for about two more months. If you've read before Indian independence, if you've read Midnight's Children, you're familiar with the concept that the children born exactly at midnight on the day that India gained its independence were born with special powers, including a connection that they had with all the other children who were also born at that moment. That's who the Midnight's children are. Rushdie was almost exactly two months short of being such a child, 1947. His father was a lawyer and a businessman who had been educated at Cambridge in England. His mother was a teacher According to Rushdie, the family name Rushdie was one his father had adopted as a tribute to Abu E. Walid Muhammad ibn Ahmad ibn Rushd. Hope I pronounced all that correctly. The 12th century Muslim scholar, often called Averroes. Averroes was an amazing person, a philosopher, a jurist who wrote about medicine and mathematics and astronomy and a dozen other subjects as well. He was sort of the the middle, did I say he was the 12th century? He was sort of the Islamic Aristotle. And in fact, he advocated for an Aristotelian view of the world, arguing that there was room for philosophy and philosophical inquiry in Islam. Rushdie is an apt name. By that, I mean that Averroes is an apt model for Rushdie's father, who held those views as well, and that's obviously why he adopted the name, and for the novelist Salman Rushdie and what he came to espouse and represent. But I haven't yet told you about the clashing worlds in particular, other than Indian independence. Let's just stick to the years before Midnight's Children made Rushdie a literary celebrity. The first clash, of course, is between Great Britain and India, his father had his foot, one foot firmly in both worlds before independence, and Rushdie himself had a foot firmly in both worlds after independence. His family was liberal Muslim, but he now considers himself an atheist. We'll talk more about his religion when we come to the fatwa. He was educated first at a private school in Bombay, or Mumbai as it came to be called, cathedral school, where his classes were in English and Hindi was taught as a second language. 
His own first language, or that of his parents anyway, was Urdu, and he's described his language, the language that they used at home, as Hindustani, which is a mixture of Hindi and Urdu, and he spoke that and English at home. A lot of famous Indians have passed through the school, cathedral school, that he, intend, that he attended in Mumbai, including painters and politicians and actors and television journalists and directors. At age 13, he was sent to England for middle school and high school and college, as we would say in America, attending rugby school in Warwickshire and Cambridge. His specialty at Cambridge was history. And from there, he landed a job at the esteemed advertising agency Ogilvy & Mather. I've told you about a few of his successes. What was the... (laughs) What... (laughs) <laughs> they always sound funny in isolation. What was it? Oh, that'll do nicely for American Express. Apparently that was a home run. He also came up with a slogan for some cream cakes, naughty but nice, which was <laughs> also successful. Hey, this stuff always sounds simplistic and obvious in retrospect, but at the time they had probably rejected a thousand alternatives that weren't as good. Rushdie was known as being kind of a wordsmith, a good having a facility in language. I read one story he told about how he was in class and he was asked to come up with some limericks. Everyone in the class was supposed to write a limerick and they were given an allotted amount of time. And maybe the teacher said, okay, if you have extra time, write two. And Rushdie, in the time that was allotted, wrote 37. And... (laughs) And the teacher accused him of cheating. And Rushdie said, cheating? Do you think I was carrying around the collected works of Edward Lear? Or do you think I had memorized 37 different limericks in order to come up with this on the spot? No, he just was fast with language. It was quick. You can see that in the kind of quicksilver prose he came to write. At least once he got rolling with his prose, which was uh, Midnight's Children. So back to our story. His heart, even though he was working at the advertising agency and he was gifted with those talents, his heart was set on writing. The first novel was called Grimus and came out in 1975. It was partially science fiction. It was six years later before Midnight's Children came out when he was 34 years old. Midnight's Children is worth a read if you haven't read it before. It's one of the books that came out in the aftermath of Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Italo Calvino and some others. It's magical realism set in India, which if you've ever been to India, you know the place is very fertile territory for a book to adopt that kind of a style. The place has magic and myth surrounding it or infused in it. Also, lots of realism for that matter. And Rushdie always had a taste for this when he was... A boy of nine or ten, he went to see The Wizard of Oz, the movie, I mean, (laughs) not the wizard himself. He went to see the movie Wizard of Oz, and he ran home and wrote a story about a boy who finds the beginning of a rainbow with steps carved into it so he can climb the rainbow, and once he's up there, he has fairy tale adventures. When he was at rugby, enduring the racism of his classmates, a kindly teacher introduced him to The Lord of the Rings. And that became his focus for a while, including an immersion in the language of Elvish. At the same time, he was reading some very, very British writers of the day, like P.J. Woodhouse and Agatha Christie. It's hard to get more English than that. Have we covered enough colliding worlds yet? You're probably getting a 
a feel for it, the way that his background set him up to to cross these worlds and see things from the point of view of an outside observer. We can say that he's Muslim, a student of Islam, more than a, a faith-driven uh, participant in the religion. He would put it that way anyway, that he was a student of Islam, a football player, a scholar, an advertising copywriter, a fiction writer, an Indian when he's in Great Britain, and British when he's in India, and that's not counting Kashmir, where his family was from originally, and where he himself set the beginning of Midnight's Children, and Haroon in the Sea of Stories, and the novel Shalimar the Clown. And meanwhile, he's there in India during all of this upheaval. He was born at the dawn of Indian independence, which was also when Pakistan was formed, which of course divided non-Muslims from Muslims, and he was from a Muslim family in the non-Muslim side. He's also been married four times to a British literary administrator, to an American novelist, to a British book editor, and to Padma Lakshmi, the Indian-American celebrity. And that's not even counting the Australian writer he left his first wife for. So, by temperament, by philosophical outlook, by religious affiliation, by geography, by background and ancestry, by marriage and by historical circumstance. He was in multiple different worlds, and his writing reflects all of that. He said, quote, I've never felt that I've written an autobiographical character, but it's pretty, usually pretty easy to see where his own life has fed into his fiction or his nonfiction in some way. You see where his interests have gotten excited. Speaking of which, let's hear from him because uh, what his fiction is about and in particular, whether he's setting out to write about politics. That's the big question with Rushdie, because, for example, even setting aside the satanic verses and that controversy, which we will cover in a moment here, his novels often take place in charged political settings. The Partition of India. The history is inescapable in that book, Midnight's Children, and it was inescapable in his next book, Shame, which is set in a country, quote, not quite Pakistan, end quote, as the book puts it. When he talked about Shalimar the Clown in that novel, he talked about this feeling he had about Kashmir, that it was like this enchanted fairyland, India's fairyland, Bollywood often set dream sequences there, and Indian tourists had made the place rich. It's a little patch of land that's lush, surrounded by the Himalayas, and it's always been known for its breathtaking beauty. And it had a long-standing reputation for tolerance, and for a place where cultures could come and mingle. But when Rushdie went there, he found that the Hindus had been driven out and the Muslims had become more vehement, and so what had once been this sort of paradise of inclusion and thoughtfulness and tolerance, a jewel in India's crown, had become something different. And his goal in setting a book there was to have all the characters and all their points of view heard, which is fair in fiction, so he's not trying to take a side. But on the other hand, he, he is being didactic in a way because he comes out on the side of humanity and tolerance and getting along and hearing everyone's opinion. In not taking one side or the other, he is taking a side in a sense. So the question was put to him, could you possibly write an apolitical book? And he said, quote, yes, I have great interest in it, and I keep being annoyed that I haven't. 
I think the space between private life and public life has disappeared in our time. There used to be much more distance there. It's like Jane Austen forgetting to mention the Napoleonic Wars. The function of the British Army in the novels of Jane Austen is to look cute at parties. It's not because she's ducking something. It's that she can fully and profoundly explain the lives of her characters without a reference to the public sphere. That's no longer possible, and it's not just because there's a TV in the corner of every room. It's because the events of the world have great bearing on our daily lives. Do we have a job or not? How much is our money worth? This is all determined by things outside of our control. It challenges Heraclitus's idea that character is destiny. Sometimes your character is not your destiny. Sometimes a plane flying into a building is your destiny. The larger world gets into the story, not because I want to write about politics, but because I want to write about people. End quote. It's a fascinating paragraph. The larger world gets into the story, not because I want to write about politics, he says, but because I want to write about people. Now, let's talk about this for a moment, because sometimes this can get a little twisted around. There's another sentence in there that's just as important to me as the last one. There's a risk of expecting an author to take on all subjects in every work. Let's say the biggest events of our time, as we sit here today. They might be climate change, or they might be racism, at least in America. Does that mean every American should address those things in every book? I don't think so. I think authors should be free to write about whatever they want. Maybe the book needs that, and maybe it doesn't. Let's say some Samuel Beckett type comes along and says, well, I'm going to write a book about a woman who's locked in the trunk of a car. A whole novel, let's say, let's hope, hopefully it's not too long, that poor woman, 180 pages, let's say, about the 14 hours she spends locked in the trunk of a car. Does that book need to be about uh, racial, sorry, does that book need to be about racial justice? Does it need to say something about climate change? Well, I don't think that's required of that book, but now let's say the book sets out to be a Saul Bellow type of book, or a Philip Roth type of book, or a Tom Wolfe type of book. In other words, a broad, sweeping look at society, the John Updike Rabbit books. Those books say, here's what's been happening in America these past 10 years. Here's where things stand today. Here's what makes our society go. Here are the highs and lows, the ups and downs. Would it be weird if a book like that left out race? Yes, it would. It would be a blind spot. Again, We don't have to prescribe what authors choose to write about. That's up to them. But we might say, come on, what country is this? This is is a partial view. So that's the sentence I wanted to highlight in Rushdie's paragraph. When he says, quote, it's not because she, meaning Jane Austen, it's not because she's ducking something. It's that she can fully and profoundly explain the lives of her characters without a reference to the public sphere. End quote. He says that's no longer possible. Well, I've given an example of kind of an extreme novel of a character locked in the trunk of a car where you might write something without having a reference to the public sphere. But if your characters are moving around, going to college and getting married and out there in the workplace and running for office or campaigning, if you're writing about all levels of society the way a George Eliot did, 
then yes, those big themes might be something you can't ignore. Not just race, but class and science and technology and the role of institutions in our lives and the relationship we have with government and power and religion. And Rushdie is saying, hey, my characters are living in the modern world, which is global and cosmopolitan. We're not in the trunk of a car, and we're not in a little English village anymore either. So our themes have to reflect that. In his own life, for example, he was at college in England in 1965, while at home there was a war between India and Pakistan that had broken out. So he couldn't get through to his parents on the phone because the military was using all the phone lines, and letters took weeks to arrive because they were being censored. So here's a kid attending university. He has decisions to make. He has nothing to do with the war in one sense. It's being waged thousands of miles away. It doesn't involve him in that sense. And yet here he is, affected deeply because his relationship with his parents, his closest relations, and the source of his finances is affected. He can't communicate with them as he expects to. That's the kind of interconnectivity that he says affects novelists today, only it's even more immediate. That was 50 years ago. Speaking of themes... Rushdie has noted that there's something odd about American writers, which is they don't always write about power. To the rest of the world, he says, America means power, but Americans don't write about it much. And this was the same in English novels at the height of the British Empire. Kind of provocative. Food for thought there. Why don't writers who are in the middle of power write about power? Interesting. What's why we owe a debt to writers like Rushdie, who have these passports into all these different worlds and can see things both from the inside and from the outside. Of course, it's ironic to talk about Rushdie and passports as if he's a global traveler free to roam around, because although that might be closer to true now, in some ways he's been the least free writer of his generation. Certainly, for a while there, he was practically living in a prison. So let's turn to that. Rushdie had tried on several different styles in his early years. He was very quick with words, as I mentioned. He had a great facility ever since he was a schoolboy. And as I mentioned, he studied history. He wrote the science fiction book Grimus, and he wrote an unpublished novel in a stream of consciousness, Joycean style. And he sometimes had some Anna Karenina style prose creeping into his works. But ultimately, he did not really find his truest self until he wrote Midnight's Children. I used to know kids who spoke late, who learned how to speak late. One in particular that I knew was the daughter of an Italian mother, an American father, and she barely said anything at all, even at age three and four. She just quietly looked around. She was obviously very intelligent, but she didn't. she'd open her mouth and words would not come out. And her parents were told that this was fairly common in two-language households. There's a bit of confusion that has to get sorted out in their brain before they're ready to speak. Rushdie was sort of the novelistic equivalent of this. He was standing still while Martin Amis and Kazuo Ishiguro and Julian Barnes and Angela Carter and Ian McEwen and all these others were, as he put it, zooming past him. But really, he just had to figure out where to fit history and his own personality and talent and his background and his interests where all this, how it all fit into his fiction. That's what he found in Midnight's Children, where history is inescapable, the children are born at the same time as the nation, but another great part of his background was religion. 
He was a non-believer who had grown up in a Muslim community. And so he wrote a book trying to understand Revelation and the experience of Revelation. Where does it come from? What's it like? His own father had a similar approach to religion, a fascination with its origins, a deep interest in where it began and what it meant then, at the moment when it began, and what it means to people now. His father didn't have a deep religious belief either. They went to the mosque once a year, Rushdie said. But when Selman sought to write about Revelation, he was using the example of Islam because that's the world he had come from and that's what he knew best. So let's take our last break, then come back with the story of the satanic verses and the fatwa that made Salman Rushdie a household name for all the wrong reasons. Even before the fatwa, Rushdie had not been a stranger to controversy. Midnight's children had drawn criticism from Indira Gandhi, then the Prime Minister of India, and his next novel, Shame, was considered antagonistic to the leaders of Pakistan. Shame was actually praised by the leaders of Iran, who awarded it a prize in a rare act for their government. But the satanic verses examined a legend about the Prophet Muhammad, and this was beyond the pale for the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was then the supreme leader. For those of us not quite old enough to remember, or who maybe weren't yet born, Khomeini had been the leader of the Iranian Revolution in 1979, which overthrew the Shah of Iran, and which had led to the taking of 52 American hostages, who were held for more than a year. Khomeini spent most of the 1980s fighting a war against Iraq, and he also provide, uh, presided over a purge of many secular politicians in Iran, and the creation of a new form of government steeped in theology and bearing the name the Islamic Republic of Iran. The Satanic Verses is not about the politics of Iran per se, but it came in the context of a rise in Islamic theologians and fundamentalists like Khomeini. The title refers to a legend about the Prophet Muhammad that has been disputed and is seen as irreverent or blasphemous, but it's been around for a while. Rushdie didn't invent it, in other words, but he conveyed it and explored it and maybe added some things to it and through his fiction set it forth as something to challenge our thinking and and que a question to ask a religion and asking religious followers to challenge their thinking as well. According to the tradition, Muhammad added verses to the Quran accepting three goddesses as divine beings. Later, the legend goes, he revoked those verses saying that the devil had tempted him to utter them. That's why they're called the Satanic Verses. In Rushdie's work, the verses are then revealed to be not from Satan, but from the archangel Gabriel. Thirteen countries with a large Muslim population banned the book. Iran, of course, and also India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and some countries that surprised me to read, like Venezuela and Thailand and Singapore and Kenya. On February 14th, the Ayatollah issued the following statement on Iranian radio. Quote, We are from Allah, and to Allah we shall return. I am informing all brave Muslims of the world that the author of the Satanic Verses, a text written, edited, and published against Islam, the Prophet of Islam, and the Quran, along with all the editors and publishers aware of its contents, are condemned to death. I call on all valiant Muslims, wherever they may be in the world, to kill them without delay, 
so that no one will dare insult the sacred beliefs of Muslims henceforth. And whoever is killed in this cause will be a martyr, Allah willing. Meanwhile, if someone has access to the author of the book, but is incapable of carrying out the execution, he should inform the people so that Rushdie is punished for his actions. End quote. As it happened, Rushdie was attending a funeral service for his friend Bruce Chatwin, the writer. When the news came out, Martin Amos and Paul Theroux, along with other writers, were there as well. And one of the grimmer moments of this whole <laughs> set of events, one that makes me kind of chuckle anyway, I admit it, the fatwa had been issued that morning, and as the writers stood around the grave of Bruce Chatwin, Theroux called out, Next week we'll be back here for you, Salman. Theroux was joking. He didn't think the fatwa was serious. He thought it was this statement made by a far-off leader. But it was serious. It soon turned out Rushdie had to go into hiding. A bounty of millions of dollars for his execution was offered soon thereafter. Rallies with book burnings occurred and bombings of bookstores and attacks on people who had translated and published the works. Rushdie desperately found his son. That was his, one of his big concerns. Where's my son? Imagine the scramble. He had to go into hiding. He was under police protection. Martin Amos had a quote, sort of perfect in a way. They didn't see Rushdie anymore, and yet he was inescapable in the news. He was everywhere. His, his image was everywhere. He says, quote, he vanished into the front page, end quote. Although for Rushdie, it was a harrowing scramble as he tried to ensure the safety of himself and his son. Fatwas had been carried out against politicians and government officials before. They had been killed based on things that Khomeini had called for, so the threat was not idle. The security required to ensure Rushdie's safety eventually seems to have set some people off. There was sympathy at first, and then there was this. There was some blowback, some there was some, uh, what's the word? Backlash. That's what I was trying to think of. There was some backlash from writers like Roald Dahl and John le Carré. There was this, there was this criticism that Rushdie was criticized for provoking controversy to sell books, for intentionally insulting religious beliefs. There was a sense, even among certain pockets of the literary world, that Rushdie had brought this on himself and shouldn't be defended, let alone celebrated. One common criticism at the time, kind of a middle ground. People were trying to find a middle middle ground. President Jimmy Carter spoke out, and, and Jeffrey Howe spoke out in Britain. There was this sort of middle ground that the politicians took, which is, hey, we're not out there trying to insult religions, and we're not in favor of that, and we respect religion. We're not trying to... Uh, undermine that. Howe pointed out that the book also referred to Britain and compared it with Nazi Germany, and he said, we're not in favor of that. But at the same time, the middle ground for the politicians is, it's not okay to condemn someone to death outside of the judicial pro process, to issue bounties on people's heads when those people live in other countries and they're fiction writers publishing works of fiction. That's the middle ground. The middle ground that the authors took the ones who weren't fully in support of Rushdie, was that maybe he should have withdrawn the work because it was putting booksellers and other innocent people at risk. 
They say, why is Rushdie out there still trying to sell the books when it's killing people or has the potential to do so? Why don't we just take it off the shelves in these countries or these places where it's uh, jeopardizing the lives of the innocent staffers who have to put it on the shelf? I would say many more authors took up Rushdie as a cause, as it was hard to see the fatwa as anything other than a disproportionate response to a work of fiction. Rushdie himself said that he never dreamed of the severity of the response. He knew he was critical, but he he hadn't had a response. He hadn't seen a response like this happen before. He said he expected a few mullahs to criticize the book, and that he would then be in a few televised debates with them about it, and that would be that. It would be an exchange of ideas. He didn't think it would lead to what it led to. Instead, he was living underground. Rushdie issued a kind of apology, which didn't satisfy the Iranians. And a few weeks after the UK, uh, a few weeks after that, the UK and Iran broke off diplomatic relations. Rushdie later said he'd been pretending when he apologized. And in fact, he wished, given the response, that he'd been more critical. He said, I don't have the quote here, he said something like, Obviously, a society that does something like this could deserve some some criticism, some calls for some introspection, if that's what the government is willing to do, call for the death of a fiction writer based on some works of fiction. And then 9-11 occurred, another act of Islamic fundamentalism. There was yet another reconsideration of Rushdie's case with a renewed sense that Rushdie had been simply the first of many to be attacked by Islamic extremism, that the fatwa, in other words, hadn't been a symptom of Rushdie's writing, but a symptom of the intolerance and propensity for violence of those who had wished him dead. Rushdie continuously maintained that those who condemned the book had likely not read all 550 pages of it, but only descriptions or excerpts out of context. We know what this looks like, this rush to judgment. And it's not just Islam that is guilty of it. The same year of the publication of the Satanic Verses, Martin Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation of Christ, came out, adapting a 30-year-old novel. But there's some parallels here in seeing how the world responds to a a movie like this, in this case, a movie. The movie includes a disclaimer that states, quote, this film is not based on the Gospels, but upon the fictional exploration of the eternal spiritual conflict, end quote. And yet the movie was condemned by many Christians before they had even seen it. They probably understood from the novel what it was going to be about, Christ struggling with different temptations, including lust and the temptation took the form of imagining himself engaged in sexual activities. But Scorsese received death threats, and the film was removed from many theaters and banned in many countries. A lot of this was from people who had not seen the movie or had not taken it seriously, but they heard what it was about, and they were ready to condemn. Even so, there was nothing comparable to a fatwa being issued by the leader of a country and a religious movement. I'm not trying to say that the response to The Last Temptation of Christ was anything on the scale of what Rushdie went through. Uh, a million, multiple million, it was $2.8 million, I think, was the bounty that was placed on Rushdie's head for whoever had killed him. In the extremity of the response, extremity, did I say extremity? In the extremity of the response and the conditions that Rushdie had to endure, he stands alone. 
And yet, he continued writing. In some ways, maybe this focused him. He certainly had plenty of time now, as it took a while before he returned to his preferred schedule of writing during the day and socializing in the evenings. But still, with this kind of an event that occurs, how did he do it? What was his struggle like? An interviewer asked him, did the fatwa shake your confidence as a writer? And Rushdie said, quote, it made me wobble a lot. Then it made me take a very deep breath and in a way rededicate myself to the art, to think, well, to hell with that. But at first what I felt was, that book took me more than five years to write. That's five years of my life giving my absolute best effort to make a thing as good as I can possibly make it. I do believe that writers, in the act of writing, are altruistic. They're not thinking about money and fame. They're just thinking about being the best writer they can be, making the page as good as it can be, making a sentence the best sentence you can write, the person interesting and the theme developed. Getting it right is what you're thinking about. The writing is so difficult and makes such demands of you that the response, sales, and so on, doesn't signify So I spent five years like this, and what I got for it was worldwide vilification and my life being threatened. It wasn't even so much to do with the physical danger as with the intellectual contempt, the denigration of the seriousness of the work, the idea that I was a worthless individual who had done a worthless thing, and that, unfortunately, there were a certain number of Western fellow travelers who agreed. Then you think, what the F am I doing it for? It's not worth it. Just to spend five years of your life being as serious as you can be and then to be accused of being frivolous and self-seeking, opportunistic, he did it on purpose. Of course I did it on purpose. How do you spend five years of your life doing something accidentally? End quote. Elsewhere, he said, quote, It made me think for a period of many months that maybe I didn't want to be a writer anymore. It wasn't to do with the fact that it's dangerous. It was that I felt disgusted with what had happened to me and at a loss to know how to continue if that was how my work was going to be treated. I thought, you know, I could be a bus conductor. Anything is better than this. I've often said, and it's true, that I think the thing that saved me as a writer was having promised my son a book. His life was substantially derailed, too, not just mine. There are all kinds of things I couldn't do with him, and things that were very difficult to do, so this was a promise I knew I had to keep. It made me go back to being a writer. When I discovered the voice for Haroon in the Sea of Stories, I felt happy again. It was the first time I'd felt happy since February of 1989. It gave me back my sense of why I liked to do my job. Then I thought... I can't go on. I'll go on. Haroon, that's end quote. Haroon and the Sea of Stories. This was where he turned. This was the voice he had found. This is a striking work to read in the aftermath of the fatwa, as much of it is about censorship, but it's also just a wonderful set of stories about a boy named Haroon and his father Rashid, a famous storyteller. It's a little easy to compare it with A Thousand and One Nights, but it's also based on Indian legends and has shades of Alice in Wonderland and the Phantom Tollbooth and Rushdie's old favorites, The Wizard of Oz and The Lord of the Rings. Due to the fatwa, Rushdie had been separated from his son, and you might say that this book, which he wrote for him and dedicated to him, is a testament to Rushdie's faith in literature and the power of literature to connect us, to unite us one-on-one even if it divides religions and nations. Or maybe I should say, 
exposes the divide. It was Rushdie's way of saying, I can't go on, I'll go on. That's a quote from Samuel Beckett, of course. Beckett, the great prophet of being unable to speak and yet having no choice but to do so. In the wake of the Holocaust, how does one return to something as simple as literature? What is the point? For Rushdie, coming several decades after Beckett, it was not the Nazis and the Holocaust, but a world where his tolerant father would be totally out of place with a growing sense of migration that was pulling people apart and the cracks being filled in with religious fervor, a breeding ground for the unexamined life. When times are uncertain, when people are insecure, a man with a plan, with strict guidelines for what to do, with black and white answers and bright red lines, can be granted power and once in possession of it, can wield it in unfathomable ways. The tragedy, well, there were tragedies here I don't want to minimize. People died. Rushdie himself had his life torn in half. There were actual tragedies that affected people in horrible ways. But there's a literary tragedy too, a human tragedy, a shadow cast over the human spirit. We can't be our best selves if we live in fear of going where that self will take us. Religions, at their best, are there for the seekers of the world. There's something draining and sad when they lose that spirit. And it's especially pronounced when the vehicle that's condemned is a work of literature, which is also something that's there for the seekers of the world. If people are afraid to write, afraid to read, and afraid to think because they might be killed, we have lost something essential about the very things we need religion and literature to provide. Here's how Rushdie put it, quote, We need all of us, whatever our background, to constantly examine the stories inside which and with which we live. We all live in stories, so-called grand narratives. Nation is a story. Family is a story. Religion is a story. Community is a story. We all live within and with these narratives. And it seems to me that a definition of any living, vibrant society is that you constantly question those stories, that you constantly argue about the stories. In fact, the arguing never stops. The argument itself is freedom. It's not that you come to a conclusion about it. And through that argument, you change your mind sometimes. And that's how societies grow. When you can't retell for yourself the stories of your life, then you live in a prison. Somebody else controls the story. Now, it seems to me that we have to say that a problem in contemporary Islam is the inability to re-examine the ground narrative of the religion. The fact that in Islam it is very difficult to do this makes it difficult to think new thoughts. End quote. Rushdie is 73 now. He has survived the fatwa, which has been sort of half-revoked. He said that his family was never seriously threatened, but there were plots that were foiled. There were firebombings of bookstores. There were people who died in the aftermath of the fatwa, including the book's Japanese translator. There's still a bounty on Rushdie's head. But he's in public a lot more now. He has a million Twitter followers. And above all, he's kept publishing. Since the Satanic Verses, he's published another dozen novels, four works of nonfiction, including Joseph Anton, the story of his life after the fatwa. That was his code name that he used, Joseph Anton, which he formed by taking the names for, from Joseph Conrad and Anton Chekhov, Chekhov and combining the two. And if that doesn't earn you a gold star from this podcast, 
I don't know what will. He has a collection of short stories that he's written. He's won prizes. He was knighted. He's lived in New York. He's become a fixture at literary parties. He's friends with you too. He has a new collection of essays out now. Some say he's not the same writer as he was before the Satanic Verses. He himself says he sees no difference. I think the key is probably somewhere in the middle. I think the real truth is probably somewhere in the middle. India was India before 1947, and it was India after 1947, but it was different. It was the same, but different. Rushdie was Rushdie before 1989 and after. The same, but different. A writer on both sides of that divide. His unfunny Valentine, as Rushdie calls it, the fatwa was issued on February 14th, the day of love in many corners of the world, and a reminder of hatred when it comes to Rushdie and his life. Rushdie's life has given us a crash course on religious intolerance and what it's like to live in a world where politics and a lack of humor and a lack of grace and a lack of humility and a lack of acknowledgement for the integrity of others their right to think, write, and publish things we might disagree with, where all those things outweigh the basic human need we have to examine our world and to self-examine ourselves and the people who live in it. Because of his example, what he's gone through, and the mental agility he's applied throughout his experience, he's a singular voice in literature, someone worth listening to on politics, religion, the life of a writer, and art. But set all that aside, I don't think he'd mind that we choose to set all that aside. Take out Midnight's Children and read it for the incredible voice of the narrator, the voice that young Selman Rushdie had been waiting to discover, his Huck Finn, his Augie March. Mark Twain said of Huck Finn, I heard the voice and knew I could just sit back, put up my feet, and listen to that voice talk. Unspool a story. Saul Bellow said, when the voice of Augie March came to him, it was as if the heavens had opened up and rain had started pouring down and he just needed to run around with buckets to catch it. And Rushdie said of his narrator, Salim, that it was this savvy voice, funny but sort of ridiculous, and it was electrifying coming out of the typewriter. He didn't always agree with what Salim was saying. But he saw that the voice could bring in everything from the ancient traditions of India to the noise and music of the modern Indian city. And so he held on to Salim's coattails and let him run. That's the right way to approach Rushdie. He himself once said, quote, Nonfiction sells better than fiction these days, but one thing you learn as a history major is how contested events are. Facts are slippery. The truth is imperfect. Fiction recognizes that. There's also another kind of truth, the truth of how we human beings relate to one another, to place, to ideas and belief systems, and you find that in a novel. End quote. So that is the way to approach Rushdie, not through the Rushdie affair, as it's called, the story of the fatwa, not through the speeches in Parliament, not the nightly news broadcasts, that resulted, not the words of the mullahs and the responses to those words, not the wrangling of geopolitical relations. Open the book, or try one of the others. Open it up, and watch the narrator run and chase after him. Or open Haroon in the Sea of Stories, step onto that metaphoric magic carpet, and ride alongside. And if you're lucky enough to have a child in your life, you can bring him or her along, too. 
Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to all of you for joining me today. Salman Rushdie. Sir Salman Rushdie. What a story. Speaking of stories, if you're looking for a place to start with Rushdie, I would say Midnight's Children is the right place to begin, or Haroon in the Sea of Stories, or you can check out one of the others based on the particular corner of the world that you'd like to explore along with Rushdie. Speaking of which... I'm glad you were here to explore this corner of the literary world with us, and I hope you come back for more. You can learn more about us at historyofliterature.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>